Welcome to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and nonfiction book coach. We are currently having a little break while we meet some writing deadlines, and so we're re-releasing a few of our favorite episodes. Today, that's with Kathy Rensenbrink. Kathy might just possibly be the most generous writer I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. She is so full of wisdom. So I was particularly thrilled when she announced that she was publishing a book, Write It All Down, all about life writing. I, it's a book that I recommend to all of my clients for anyone who's interested in life writing of any kind. It is worth its absolute weight in gold. Kathy was so generous um, to spend some time with me. We discussed self-doubt, trusting the process, and not allowing yourself to be paralyzed by perfectionism. Here's the episode. Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to have Kathy Rensenbrink with me. She's the Sunday Times bestselling author of a number of books, um, The Last Act of Love, A Manual for Heartache, Dear Reader, Everyone is Still Alive, and most recently, Write It All Down, How to Put Your Life on the Page. Thank you so much for being here, Kathy. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's it's so exciting to talk to you about this book because, um, in a way, we can almost talk about all of your books through talking about this book. Um, but so, I mean, I love life writing, um, as I know you do. Um, but I would love to um, talk about, I guess, your body of work and and how you've, I guess, in a way, you've approached similar topics throughout your life in lots of different ways on the page. Um, so your first three books kind of have crossover with your own personal experience in different ways. And I guess I was just wondering, when it came to you starting to write, did you, do you, in a way, did you have to write the first, the last act of love first before you could move on to other things, do you think? Yes, I think I did. I think that's, that's what I think now. Anyway, I did keep trying to write other things um, and f- failing really. So um, so the last act of love is about the death of my brother and he was knocked over when I was 17. And I think really from the moment that happened, him and what happened to him and my role as witnessing what happened to him became kind of like the most dominant thing. And then I, uh, and then really kind of all my life since then, really, I've sort of had this relationship with almost like whether or not I'm going to allow it to be the dominant thing. Mm. And then that I think is what I wrote about you know write about slash wrote about and I had to kind of always sort of like deal with that on the page first I think or else it just felt like a um well I mean it just is the most important thing I do remember I was doing a course I was doing an open university module I was on maternity leave and we'd done like the novel and we'd done poetry and then on the life writing module I was really trying not to write about my brother. I was trying to write, I was actually trying to write a funny essay about having a baby, you know. Um, I was calling it My Life Without Harold Pinter because I was listening <laughs> on audiobook to Lady Antonia Fraser's um, autobiography, which was called My Life with Harold Pinter. And it was full of wonderful lines like, you know, this evening, I, the, the evening of my divorce, I went to the opera and saw La Boheme whilst wearing a floor length violet velvet cloak. I just thought, like, I, I just thought, like, wonder what my life, you know, my life without Harold Pinto. So I was writing, I was kind of like trying to write that. And then I just, in this flash, it just felt 
really quite deeply inauthentic to be writing about, you know, to be trying to write about anything other than the central thing, which was what happened to my brother. So it is where I started. I do often keep trying, you know, and I'm always trying to get away from it on the page, you know, arguably in life. <laughs> um, but it's sort of quite, it, but it is quite tricky. So, Do you think, do you find that with the other writers that you've worked with, because you've te- taught writing quite a lot, um, do you find that that happens to a lot of people when, they, as they approach life writing, that there's something they just can't quite get away from and it chooses them? Yes, I think it is. I think a lot of people have um, an event or a relationship that has a that has this sort of dominant cast, this sort of pole position, if you like, in their lives. And often it's secret. So often it is hidden. Sometimes it's something that, you know, they'd say people say things like nobody in my life knows this about me. But, you know, when I was 14, this happened. Um, I don't know what I honestly don't know. I've almost to the point where I think like maybe I attract people, but it does often seem to be something that happens in that kind of teenage zone, kind of mm. 14 to 19. Um, because we're probably still so malleable then, aren't we? But uh, plenty of sort of developed intelligence, but also I think so uh, vulnerable. Um, mm. So I definitely think, think that things potentially have a huge impact whereas when things I think happen you know I'm 48 now and there's a different quality in the experience when things happen to me now it's not that they're it's, it's, it's nothing about it being like oh it was sadder because I was 17 it's because I wasn't fully formed yes. so I I was porous I could be overtaken I could be um oh I've just thought of that funny thing is it like Terminator films where people like transform into yes, you know yeah <laughs> it's like it's like that sort of thing I, it was just too easy to kind of punch holes in me in a way so I think as you get older usually you do become more solid um and then kind of like less able to be completely to be to completely you know and irrevocably altered by events mm-hmm. but I think in that teenage period it's kind of still very much up for grabs so I often do you know I often meet people who are like that. Um, yeah, so I think it stays. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I was writing fiction before I wrote Tender and then it just wouldn't leave me alone. And it just sort of almost demanded to be written. It's a funny one, isn't it? It's just, and it felt like, okay, it's not going to leave me alone. I'm going to go do that. And now I can go do something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I mean, really, when I started writing my first book, which I didn't think would be a book, I would, I wrote it just with the intent of writing it out of myself yeah. that was the that was how I started off that I was just going to write it out of myself and hopefully sort of like you know get rid of it deal with it liberate myself to write other things yeah. um, and this is something you talk about in write it all down as well is this idea of like it doesn't always have to be with an audience in mind that we write it all down sometimes it needs to be written yeah I think that's really important and I think that it, whatever your aspiration is for your work including if you, you know, I don't know, want to be rich and famous or whatever, I think a really good way to start is by thinking that it's just for you and that the objective is just to try to, you know, sort things out a bit, arrange your thoughts a bit, um, you know, try to bring a bit of order to the mental chaos. I think those are really good objectives to start with because usually what stops people doing it 
it's because they, you know, because there's all these big questions and they can't find the answer to them all. Or because they're just paralysed with the thought, the quality of it. You know, they want the first paragraph to be really good or they want to make sure they're right starting in the right place. And all of those things are important to a finished book, but they but they tend to just stop us getting started, I think. So yeah. I think it can be quite good to just be private in the initial stages of something. Yeah, and you do dedicate quite a lot of the book to that phase and to this idea of what's stopping us from writing. Do you Have you found in your experience working with other writers that that, that actually is one of the biggest problems of writing, is that we, we stop ourselves? Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, I think it's almost like the, arguably, I think it's the only <laughs> it's the only problem <laughs> writing I mean I do my own writing it's like 95% the struggle with self-doubt and then 5% of uh, I don't know like how do I move these people from this room to that room or um <laughs> I sometimes moving people around you know that thing you know that thing of uh, again the, well I mean I suppose the technique of it you know I often get stuck people get stuck in a room and I can't get them out of a room into another room <laughs> But you know, but ninety five percent for me is self doubt, and I thought, and I thought about that when I was writing this book, and I thought, well, there are people that presumably don't feel it, but I don't think there are many of them, and there aren't many of them who are writers. That that's yes. the point. I know very, I have met people who feel entirely convinced of their own talent, but none of those most most talented writers are actually besieged with self doubt. So, um, and it doesn't change, which I think that's the interesting. That's the interesting thing about it. It does like publication and other people liking your work. I don't think really changes the doubt. It's a very peculiar thing because you would think it should, but it doesn't. So therefore, once knowing that, you kind of think, well, that's a that is a that's a good thing for people to know. Because what I the difference for me was I I used to just think that all my self doubt was objectively true. Mm. So I used to get bogged down in arguing with myself about it. Yeah. Whereas that's the thing I try not to do now. I it's not that it, the self-doubt isn't there anymore. I have a fairly constant track in my head, like, what are you doing this for? And This is all a bit pointless. And why did you choose this book rather than another book? And what are you doing that for? And, I, you know, so that's still just a constant soundtrack. Um, but I don't kind of, I've just learned how to ignore it to get stuff done. Oh, it's um, so important, I think, that um, that authors talk about this because it's so easy to assume that's something that only happens very either very early in your career or um, to certain kinds of people. But as you're saying, it's sort of fairly universal, this idea of, of doubt. But um, but what I loved is you talked about how you've learned to trust the process, that when the self-doubt comes up, you know you've, you've kind of gone through it enough times now that you can keep working and trust the process of working. Yeah, and that's what – and it's, it's definitely – it's not that I've learned to trust myself, it's that I've learned to trust the process. So it'll still be hard, but if I can just kind of, you know, take a few breaths and think, oh, yeah, this is this, this is what happens, this is what happens at this stage. Um, and then for me, it's really all about how I minimise the amount of energy I drain out on it, really, how I manage to husband my resources so I can put my energy and effort into the work rather than in having a debate over whether or not I'm going to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so. I think that's such a good way of putting it, isn't it? Because I think sometimes we do spend a huge amount of energy. I think any kind of creative spends a huge amount of energy on that other stuff. That sometimes, if we can just just accept that it's there and sort of sit beside it, rather than get too involved in it, 
and just actually yeah absolutely work. it's certainly in my experience you don't get rid of it um that, that but almost that's and also again you i these days no longer expect that some kind of external validation will get rid of it because mm-hmm. i think that if that was possible i think my first book which was an objective success um should have fixed me but it hasn't you know i don't mm-hmm. feel and then for a while I thought, well, oh, is it because I haven't finished a novel? If I finish a novel, well, <laughs> the voice in my head that keeps saying, like, well, it doesn't matter, people liking that, you still haven't finished a novel. You know, so so I thought that might fix it. It hasn't. And again, there's still a bit of me that thinks maybe what I need is more success. You know, maybe <laughs> if I <laughs> maybe if the you know, maybe if I had been made into a film or maybe if I had a big American book deal, that would fix it. But actually, I don't think it would. I think it would just be, I think it would still be the same. I think you're still sort of just slightly stuck with whatever it is. And so it's just about kind of just learning how to go la, la, la and kind of getting on with it. When I, um, you know, I learn more that when when I just actually don't really listen, I just kind of start writing anyway. And then as I write, as in like in, in the session on the day, as I write, it fades out, it zones out. Mm-hmm. It turns down. So it's not like it's continually on high alert. I've learned that it's mainly over that business of getting in the chair and getting started. So yeah. if I can just manage it during that period, then it will just sort of fade out. There's something that um, – there's a quote that from the book that I really um, loved, which is that you took from gambling, which is enjoy the flutter – expect to lose and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because I think that's such a brilliant thing to apply to writing and to a life of writing yeah it's interesting isn't it and again I think this is more relevant I often think that um it's like if I was listening to me before I was published I'd probably be thinking something like well yeah yeah that's all right for her to say like with all this success etc etc but like truly what I know now is creative careers I think feel very uncertain I mean mm. presumably you get to a level where you don't feel uncertain I don't know there are probably people out there who you would think might feel sure that people will always want them and their work but I mean even that I'm not sure of because it, it, it's just kind of not how it feels so I think wherever you are in it it's more of that thing of really trying again not to sort of lose the joy of it not to lose the creative urge of it not to let all that get covered over by um a sort of ambition and the desire or need for money I think there's a really strange thing when writing becomes your job or part of mm. your job and that, and that, that itself is just such a weird and odd thing but I think that wherever you are in it I think it's just that thing of the more you can be the more you can focus your energy and attention on the process rather than the product. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to do at the moment, make it all about the process. And as much as I can, just kind of forget about the product. It's almost, I'm almost to the point at the moment of thinking that the the product, the book, it's almost just, it's just like the byproduct of the thought. It's not the important mm-hmm. thing. The important thing is the process. And then if the, the the important, if you imagine it like the cement mixer and then a book pops out at the end as the brick, the important bit is the cement mixing. And then if the brick that pops out is useful and worthy for other people, then that's kind of like a, you know, so it's byproduct, I guess, rather than product. That's what yeah. I've been thinking at the moment. Um, and of course it's not, you know, then if you, if it is going to be a book for other people, then you think about it in a different way. So definitely that's another thing that's really helped me separating out the, 
the stages. So, but for a large part of the process, I'm trying to convince myself that I'm just messing about, mm-hmm. um, just having a laugh. <laughs> and then only quite late in the day do I really start um, making the making the work reader ready, as it were, red carpet ready. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's so important. And I love the way you talked about in that in the book, because like this idea of you know a book is not just a book right from the beginning. It comes in stages and it goes through different stages. And it's okay to sort of have different hats on in a way as you're at different stages. And at the beginning, you might need to completely protect yourself from even imagining there was there's anyone that's ever going to read it. And then at the end, you might need to put yourself in the in the kind of seat I guess in a way of a reader so that you can imagine how someone else would look at it um but it is so helpful because it's um books are such a big amorphous in the beginning such an abstract thing because they're so big that you almost can't hold it in your head all at the same time for quite a long time um and so we need to sort of almost have some little tricks to get ourselves to sit down and do the work don't we (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's one of the big things about it. It's just it is such a huge undertaking, I think, writing a book. So like at the beginning, you do it can be really helpful to have a almost sort of insane self-deluded idea that it will be quite easy. <laughs> like you don't want to know everything you've got to do at the beginning. You sort of want a period of op- of optimism. My agent and I have this joke we say, we say like, "Oh, this book will write itself." Um, <laughs> And it's like, you know, it's never going to be easy. I mean, I don't find anything easy. I I had to write 50 words this morning for a, a, you know, I've already written this piece for this magazine. Then they just want 50 words about what my favourite springtime walk is to put me on the contributor panel. And, oh, the amount, you know, I'm chewing on my pen over those 50 words. (laughs) I don't ever find anything, I don't find anything really easy. But you've got to kind of think, but I, you know, I intentionally say to myself, like, oh, I'm just going to knock off a first draft of that. And then I tried to hold that sort of delusion phase for a bit (laughs) and almost slightly trying to not know things. But I think a lot of memoir writing or any book writing, it's, it's really what you worry about when. And you can't worry about all the things you've got to worry about at the beginning. It's just too heavy. It's too weighty. That's not going to get it done. So um, I think there's also a way in which you kind of, you it's like you've got knowledge in your head, but you want to lock certain knowledge away from yourself during different phases. Mm-hmm. So, um, so again, I'm trying to kind of almost like ring fence. Uh, I'm teaching this really nice um, group at the moment three months group and sometimes I, I'll say something to them and I'll say ah but the me that's writing the first draft of my next novel doesn't want to know that at the moment you know? <laughs> oh that's such a good so way it's like I'm try- it. yeah I'm trying to hide it from myself I don't want to I don't the, the, that bit of me at the moment doesn't want to know that eventually in the editing stage I'll like, have to read it all aloud six times <laughs> uh, and um and you know having gone through a legal read um, for a book that has quite a lot of different people in it um, and have having had a number of friends recently go through legal reads for their memoirs, you don't want to think about that point and that process when you're just also trying to get a first draft down because that is quite a scary prospect as well. So, yeah, you're yeah, like, like separating I, it out. That's such a good example. I mean, I think the whole thing about other people, again, it's like, it's all dealable with, but I do think it's really the best way is just to try and write the book you want to write first. Yeah. 
and then think about all that later. Because I think that there aren't, you know, very few books don't exist because those problems are insurmountable. But loads of books don't exist because the author never got round to writing them because they were just so they just couldn't work out what they would do in the future. So the future yeah. never arrived, really. Yeah, and it's and it's amazing actually the kind of solutions I've had clients and friends come up with in order to work out a problem that could have stopped them writing the book in the first place but didn't Mm -hmm. and they allowed themselves to do it and then came up with a creative solution to work around that afterwards in a way that really worked positively for the book and for their personal life um so yeah I'm interested in that I don't know if you can explain further without um dropping a bomb on anyone's Uh, Well, it might be easier for me to talk about myself, like for, you know, because I included my son in my book. um, And even though it's not straight memoir, it's got lots of memoir in it. And Mm -hmm. I had to make really tricky choices about what to include and what not to include because he can't give his consent fully. And it's a really difficult area and lots of people um, won't go anywhere near it because it's, yeah, too much of a moral minefield. But for me, in the end, what it was, I right from the beginning of deciding that I was going to include a bit of my experience with my son in the book, I decided that I was going to find the right person to do um, an autistic writer who was going to do a read of it, both from the or the perspective of, um, of somebody who uh, educated other people about autism, but also could look at it from a point of view of as a writer of well, what's necessary to the story and what's not necessarily and 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 am I coming at it from his perspective and am I being compassionate to his perspective and as soon as I allowed myself to spend money on that mm-hmm. I was able to write freely and in fact in the end it was a such a wonderful experience having that reader um and it made me feel really good about uh I guess what I'd chosen and together we decided you know, a few of the areas that I wasn't 100% sure about, how I could word them in a way that was respectful to my son, mm-hmm. but also was able to show the story in the way it needed to be told. Um, and it worked and it was wonderful. Um, but it was not something, um, I, I guess it was, I had to allow myself um, to do that right from the beginning. I said, I will do that for myself so that I can be free on the page, knowing that he would understand that he need, I needed his help to work out what was going to be said and what wasn't going to be said. And it was great. The whole process was really wonderful, actually. Yeah, and it's that thing about needing to be free on the page because I think at the point of creation, you just don't want, you just don't want problems. You don't want blockers, really. And I think that, so that's the thing. It's usually about working out the, I'm a great fan just of the notion of parking stuff. Like, oh, I'll sort that out later. I'll sort that yes. out later. I'll sort that out later. Um, yeah, because yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because it needs to be, um, and for me, what it, what it was is it, the story needs to be emotionally true. It needs to be, it doesn't mean every detail needs to be in there. And so you can put in things knowing what the story needs to say and take a few of the bits afterwards when you realize that they could potentially compromise something for somebody personally out there. Um, but actually, it all works. You understand the tr- emotional truth of that without that detail being in there, and you can take it out afterwards. I think that. Yeah, I think that's be a bit that's easier. really true. Yeah, and in yeah. some kind of magical way, I think that it's um, the, something of the flavour remains even when you take out the words. It's like once you've got all the moving parts, you can see which parts you can easily take out without affecting the overall story. Yeah. But there's something about again that emotional truth remains even when you take out the individual facts I think 
Yeah, absolutely. So can we talk a little bit about some of the um, the process and the tools that are in here? Because there's so many wonderful tools and things in here. Um, mind maps. This is something I've used before as well. And I just think that's such a great way. I love the way you described how freeing it can be to kind of not wed yourself right away to kind of putting sentences and paragraphs together, but to just start with a big piece of paper and writing words and allowing them to come off. Can you explain how you um, teach it to students? Yeah, I mean, I think I came across it slightly accidentally in some kind of work training course years ago. I probably turned my nose up at it a bit. But then I realised how good it is, and I call it escaping from the linear. Um, because I think one of the big things, one of the really big tricky things with books is that even a, even a really experimental book, it's still essentially it's a linear experience. We consume it one word after another. Um, and so the thing that, again, stops us writing is how do we get the tangled stuff that's all in the air above our head? How do we ever think we can be able to tame that out of us so that it'll be one word after another, you know, like 70,000 times, all of it making sense? It just feels too much. <laughs> and certainly something that massively helps me is to mind map it instead. So at a very simple level, I just put the subject in the middle. And I quite often do it now with journalism when I've got a piece to write. Um rather again than getting stuck on thinking oh what is my first line going to be what's my first paragraph going to be even like what's my way in going to be you know because the beginning is really important so but the main thing I think is starting at the beginning often isn't the right idea and you get a bit of you know performance anxiety as well when you start at the beginning so I just start with a mind map I just put the subject in the middle and then just sort of splodge botch you know just mess down loads of um, content loads of words onto it and then allow myself to kind of play around with that and branch off from words into other words I, every time I do it I am astonished with like how good it is and how quickly I can see things and how calming it can be actually often if I'm just feeling overwhelmed and you know upset or whatever I really it will really help me if I take it I have lots of pads of paper big paper and it'll really help me if I take a big piece of paper and just in the middle write down like today or something and then just sort of put it put down my I call them state of the nations but they're personal to me my personal state of mind my personal state of the nation and capture everything like that it's like a snapshot so it really does feel a little bit like I have managed to capture my thought cloud or mm. uh, the closest because the thing I would really like to be able to do and this is arguably I think what writing a memoir is I'd like to be able to put a computer port in my brain and just plug a memory stick into my head <laughs> and then plug it into the big bookmaking piece of software <laughs> and then for the book to fall out at the end so it's like part of it is that process isn't it it's how do you do that how do you interpret um, your thoughts into book form Yes, and, yeah. uh, and and I find the mind map really useful. Uh, I think also it's a lot of people who write um, aren't particularly linear in their way of thinking. So, so my husband, for example, is a really linear thinker. He likes critical paths, and mm -hmm. you know he likes to know what the process is. Uh, but he'd be the last person in the world who would ever want to write creatively, and. My sort of tentative observation, of course it doesn't always hold, is that a lot of people who do think like he does don't actually want to create creative things. And a lot of people who are very creative hugely struggle with the notion of following a set of instructions or, you know, so I mean, I really struggle with even, even like following a recipe that someone else has written. 
I, I mean, which I just never do. So I like cookbooks, but I just lie on the sofa with them, sort of reading the prose. And, and then if I ever kind of try and make anything, I'll sort of much more inclined to think like, oh, so you need 10 ingredients for this. Well, I mean, I haven't got that, but, you know, but I've got potatoes and I've got some <laughs> paprika. I'll just see what happens if I do that. You know, I, I just can't bring myself to follow a recipe and do everything in the right order. It's like, ugh, horrible to me. And I, I, I think a lot of, a lot of people who write are more, are more, are higher than you know higher than average to the population people that write are like that um i think lots of creative writers uh again my other little theories lots of creative writers str- struggle to learn to drive aren't very good at flat pack furniture you know those kind of process tasks are difficult so i think mind mapping really helps to to sort of leave out for now that that pressure of planning, that pressure of needing to know what what's going to happen when. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, isn't it? I've used my mapping and also lists to early on in projects to repeatedly over and over again because I know almost that every time I've got a bit more information, I can kind of go through the process and I get a little bit more. And it's almost like puzzle pieces start to appear and they start slotting together a bit but it's like um it's not it's like you're describing it's not a linear process at all even though I might end up with a linear thing proposal for instance Um, yeah it doesn't start that way it comes together in patches and then they get rearranged and they get moved here and they get moved there and it just slowly the picture starts to emerge and emerge and it does feel like a picture in a way yeah, I think that's entirely right. And I think before you've done it, when you've only ever read, you know, as you, most people who want to write have read books. So when you've only ever read finished books, it's very tempting to think that, I don't know, Julian Barnes or Joan Didion or Blake Morrison, all the memoirists I read, you know, long before I wrote one. Very tempting to think those people just sort of like sat down for a few hours every day and the book came out of them in the same order that I'm reading it. Yeah. Whereas what I now know is that that... I don't know whether it happened that way for them, but that certainly doesn't happen that way for me. And that I don't think it happens that way for most people. And it's a, um, I certainly couldn't write a book like that. I, all my books I've written completely out of order and then shuffled them around. So again, it's much more like having, I don't know, like a pack of playing cards or a pack of dominoes where you've got little bits of content and then you're shuffling them about. And then at some point you shuffle them, you know, you do the reader shuffle, then you start shuffling them into an order that's going to make sense for a reader. But certainly in the early stages, um, I've learned that it's too much of trying to trying to put the content cards in order before I know what's on them. It's obviously pointless and difficult. Yes. Oh, that's such a great way of putting it. Yeah. Trying to put them in order before you know what's on the cards. Um, that's such a good way of putting it because I think sometimes um, we do get a bit bogged down in the order of everything and um, we need to understand the content first. And I did also really love your bin analogy in the um, in the book as well, where you have this uh, metaphorical bin where you just put all the ideas and then once you've got a whole lot of ideas, then you can start ordering things. Yeah, I'm very keen on that, the bin and the journey and how you don't want to be trying to construct the journey first. Um, and it's all, I mean, it all goes I think slightly flies in the face of conventional advice because I think conventional advice tends to be working later on, like like advice from editors and agents. They're already working with a strong first draft. So yes. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, once you've got the first draft, you do think and talk about it in an entirely different way. You say things like, oh, I think the reader needs this and a strong opening needs to be that. Mm. But it's that you need some of that constructed, I think, or else it's, uh, well, what happens to me is if I try to think too much about the order of things before I know what the things are, it feels like um, it dissolves in my fingers. Tissue paper mm. and rain is what it feels like. Uh uh, very fragile you know very easy to damage so and can I ask have you found the process now you you've written um a novel and are you working on and did you say you're working on another novel now? I'm working on another yeah. novel are yeah you, have you found the process any different between writing fiction and non-fiction or is it oh, I think it's hugely like? different yeah I think it's hugely different the main problem I have with fiction really I mean in lots of ways fiction is really liberating because again you don't have that thing of Oh gosh, how's so and so going to think about this? And yeah, <laughs> can I admit that? And do I want to admit that? And, but does it make sense without it? You know, without all that kind of stuff. So it's very nice not to have that in fiction. Um, but it's more a question of parameters. I've got so many ideas, and of course, with real life, you are you are to a certain extent. You've got the boundary of, you know, only so many things have happened to you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, whereas with fiction the fact that you know the fact that like oh, could it be i could be setting this on mars i could be setting this in 1450 i could be setting this in the future i could be you know so that's i think why my first book took me so long i just kept uh well i, I kept giving up on it and trying to write something else and then eventually thought actually i've just got to stick at it and finish something um and that's what i think now so and it's also it does help with the self-doubt so I at the time I committed to the second book what it was going to be what it was going to be about I then said right then I have to finish this again even if it's rubbish it can be rubbish that's completely fine but it has to be done done. I'm not allowed to write half of it and then decide that I made the wrong choice and I should be writing the historical novel or (laughs) you know even though I will I do I think that a lot I often think like oh why why did I think I want to write another contemporary novel why and then I just think I'll shut up and just get on with it um because I've learned it won't do it doesn't do me any good to not finish things really yeah Uh, and again once you get away so much from the product and the process when I was finishing my first novel I had a post-it note on the wall next to me which said um this novel does not have to be any good but you do have to finish it you will learn lots of things Mm. by finishing this draft carry on and that oh. was, I just had that on the wall and just kept looking at it and obeying it. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I am going to make one for myself and stick it up there. I have committed to myself to finishing a draft of a novel mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it. And you're right. It doesn't have to be any good. It just has to be done. It just mm-hmm. has to be done. That's it. <laughs> um, can I ask you, I know you've got lots of recommendations in the book, um, but can I ask you for one or two memoirs that you would recommend as something that, for perhaps somebody who's trying to get a bit of inspiration of all the different things, different approaches they could take, just something that you think um, might inspire someone to keep going with their project. Yeah, so I've got a few. Uh, one of my favourites is The Boy with the Top Knot by Satnam Sanghera, um, which, again, it's a, it's just a really lovely, quite easy-to-read coming-of-age story Um and he just again just manages the narrative really well. Um, has a great first line about drinking alone needn't necessarily be an unglamorous pursuit, and then goes on to say that you know, like if if you're in New York, say or whatever, and then a bit about how, but when you're back in Wolverhampton, 
drinking a bottle of vodka that you've been carrying around in a fitness first promotional rucksack <laughs> back in your parents' house. And, um, and it's all about how he's trying to get up the courage to tell his mother that he doesn't want an arranged marriage. And then in the process, he finds lots of things out about his family. Um, so it's, it's really lovely. So that's one of my favourites. Um, I think that I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell is exceptional. Um, I always recommend that with a bit of a safety warning because she she had written seven novels before yes. read, writing that. And I think that, that that's why it's so good because it's not told chronologically. Um, but And also because like all the best writing, the best writing, even when it's really hard, you, the reader isn't aware of it being difficult. Yes. So I think as a reader, you can read that book and you you not you don't necessarily know how good she has to be as a writer to sort of pull that off. This is um, I think that is Maggie O'Farrell to a T, isn't it? Her writing appears to just you could just read it so easily. It's she hides how difficult, like her skill hides how yeah. difficult her her work is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, you feel good. with that she has just sort of sat down and jotted down a few remembrances. But again, I think if any of the rest of us mere mortals who hadn't, you know, <laughs> written seven novels and really learned, uh, and often in her novels as well, she, they tend not to be chronological. So she's really good at managing time. Mm. Um, so yes, I think I think if I think if I tried to do what she does in that book, I'd just sort of end up on in the floor in a heap, which doesn't matter in a way. I mean, it's nice to be ambitious. Yeah. But that, but one of the things I think I've really learned, and this is always what I like to do teaching people now, is, is that thing of I never want to blunt anyone's ambition. It always makes me feel think a bit about yoga, though. You know, like if you, if you, you know, when you look at people doing toe stands or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and again, if somebody's really good at yoga, they make it look really easy. But if I tried to do most yoga poses, I'd just fall on the floor. So it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be doing yoga, but it's probably nicer if I start off with a few, you know, learn a bit of downward dog first before <laughs> trying to kind of like balance on one ear. And I think that's I think that's always quite important to say with writing, especially because with the best writing, the most difficult writing doesn't look like it's a difficult pose. I think that's the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk about your work. I think with Write It All Down, I mean, apart from the fact it's just incredible to have it um, writing advice in such an accessible form, because I think, you know, for a lot of people getting to classes or, you know, going to university or whatever it is, you know, can be quite daunting and accessible. And so to have this all in a book is so brilliant. And it's it's still got your same very funny, very compassionate tone which I love which goes through all of your books so it's also just a joy and a pleasure to read as well oh thank you that's really kind um so we always just finish just with a book that we're reading at the moment that we're really enjoying that we'd recommend to others um have you been reading anything lately that you've really enjoyed I've been having I've had a very good reading scene lately but the one I'll tell you about it's a memoir by Kit Duval and it's called Without Warning and Only Sometimes (sighs) And it is about her childhood, and it's wonderful. She's a wonderful novelist. Um, she wrote a boy. She wrote "My Name Is Leon" and "A Trip to Time." Um, a great essayist, an all-round excellent person, and um, and I really, really, really loved her memoir. She's coming out in a couple of months, I think. Um, but yes, I just adored it. So that's what I would recommend. Excellent. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that one, and I'll pop that one in the show notes. 
I've been having a bit of a trip down memory lane lately, actually. I um, just reread The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides, Ooh, and yes. I loved it as much as I loved it 20 years ago. <laughs> and I was a little bit worried I wasn't going to. It's so funny, isn't it, when you read something after you put it you know, down and you've got all these things in your mind about what you thought of it. But um, I picked it up again because actually because of the narrator, because it's written in the first person plural, which I was curious about rereading for a technical reason. And I was just completely hooked all over again and absolutely loved it. So, um, yeah, that was a really nice treat to feel that. Yeah, I love rereading. I just really like the way that I love that whole thing of am I still going to love it? Am I going to love it differently? You know how you meet your former self in the pages as well as the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. Um, and um, yeah, best of luck having write it all down out in the world. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. And it's been a delight to be with you today. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country if you've enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe or follow and please leave a review it really helps others to find the podcast